in the Lord of the Rings, spoiler alert if you're completely unaware and haven't seen it or read it, after the ring is destroyed at Mount Doom, Sam Gamgee wakes up from his sleep thinking his incredible journey with Frodo was all a dream. Let me read the beautiful account. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed, but over him gently swayed wide beechen boughs, and through their young leaves sunlight glimmered green and gold. All the air was full of a sweet mingled scent. He remembered that smell, the fragrance of Athelion. Bless me, he mused. How long have I been asleep? For the scent had borne him back to the day when he had lit his little fire under the sunny bank. And for a moment, all else between was out of waking memory. He stretched and drew a deep breath. Why, what a dream I've had, he muttered. I am glad to wake. He sat up and then he saw that Frodo was lying beside him and slept peacefully, one hand behind his head and the other resting upon the coverlet. It was the right hand and the third finger was missing. Full memory flooded back and Sam cried aloud, It wasn't a dream. Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind. In the land of Athelion and in the keeping of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow in the twinkling of the leafy sunlight. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel, he said. But Sam lay back and stared with, mouth, his, with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? What Sam asks Gandalf is quite profound because it is different than asking whether good things are going to come true. Rather, Sam is asking whether sad things are going to come untrue. Sam's statement recognizes that there is currently something very wrong with the world. It is a place affected by Adam and Eve's sin, a world that is filled with sorrow, a world that is filled with sadness. It's a world cursed by sin, a world that groans as it awaits redemption. And in the final consummation, all those sad things will come untrue. The curse will be rolled back. The world will be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And that's when the real party starts. That's when we'll dance and we'll party like we've never partied before. Now, piggybacking on what Sam Gamgee said, Tim Keller said this, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And we get a foretaste of this when we see Jesus healing people and performing miracles in the gospel. In fact, every miracle in the entire Bible, from the parting of the Red Sea to the crumbling of the walls of Jericho, the healing of the paralytic that we'll see today, they're all pointing us to the reality that everything sad is going to come untrue and it will be somehow greater for having once been broken and lost. That's the hope of the Christian faith. It's the resurrection. Jesus is making all things new right now. As he says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. So what do we do until then? 
until we see all things made new at the end. What do we do when we run smack dab into the middle of the brokenness of this world? Answer, you go run smack dab into the middle of Jesus' living room. That's what you do. You go run smack dab into the middle of Jesus' living room as he is leading a Bible study on the couch. And that's exactly what a man and his friends do in our passage today. And it's a paradigm for us as we wait in this broken, sin-filled world for the renewal of all things. And it is as simple as uttering one word. Help. That's what you do while you wait for Jesus to come back to make everything sad come untrue. You cry out for help. You take the Beatles album title as your prayer. Help. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. I need the Savior who is making all sad things come untrue. And that's what we'll see and get a foretaste of in Mark chapter 2. So turn there now in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're back in the Gospel of Mark today, picking up where we left off in our series, Binge Watching Jesus. Mark chapter 2, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus is most likely living with Peter. So this story of the paralytic probably occurs in Peter's house, the very house that Jesus had healed numerous people in back in chapter 1 that we looked at well over a month ago. Jesus has now returned from all the desolate places that he was living in, he was, where he was camping out, because word had spread through that region that he was healing and people were seeking him out. And now word has spread, he's back home. Remember what we saw back in chapter 1. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed many who were sick. He cast out demons. He healed the leper who ran his mouth all over town about Jesus and about how Jesus had healed him. So when he returns to Capernaum, his house gets flooded with people. The house was overflowing into the streets. And as Jesus is preaching the word of God to these people in Peter's living room, four men bring their friend who is paralyzed and they can't get through the front door to see Jesus. And so what do they do? One of them has a brilliant idea. Let's go up on the roof and tear apart Peter's tiles and lower our friend right down in front of Jesus. And they do it. Now, remember what we saw a few weeks ago. Homes were pretty small back then, so Jesus is teaching, and people are crammed into this house. Scholars estimate that homes in Capernaum, maybe at the most, if it was small, could fit about 50 to 60 people in there. So they're all crammed in there, and all of a sudden, stuff starts falling from the ceiling. Roofs back then were made of straw and mud, and they would be laid over these wooden beams. So these men start ripping apart Peter's roof, and they lower their friend right down in front of Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 5, son, 
your sins are forgiven. He declares the gospel to him. He tells him that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed his sins from him. Psalm 103. He tells him that he will have compassion on him, being that they are in the village of compassion, Capernaum, the village of comfort. And he tells him that he will tread his iniquities underfoot and that he has cast all of his sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 7. He tells the man that in love he has delivered his life from the pit of destruction because he has cast all his sins behind his back, Isaiah 38. But how do the religious leaders respond? You would think that they would be glad. Hey, somebody's telling another person that they're forgiven. That's what we're about. You would think that this would encourage them. But they're furious. Everything that they have heard about this guy, Jesus, seems to be lining up. And news had reached the leaders in Jerusalem at this point in Jesus' life. They had heard stories and reports about this new rabbi, and that's why they traveled all the way up north to see it for themselves. Luke tells us this in his account of this story in his gospel. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17, he says, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. I will explain this more next week. But the religious leaders in the south come up from Jerusalem to see and hear this rabbi that they have been hearing about. And boy, are they in for a treat. Imagine how, everyone, how surprised everyone was when this paralytic interrupts and the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, Son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus doesn't say, why didn't you knock? Or, could you not have gone through the window? Or, ever heard of saying, excuse me, as you make your way through a crowd? No, the first thing Jesus does is speak absolution to him. And the scribes are fuming inside. They are screaming. They can't believe this. The scribes were thinking in their heads, this guy is blaspheming and that's punishable by death according to the Mosaic law. He thinks he can forgive sin? Who in the world does this redneck Johnny-come-lately think he is? He needs to die for saying that. But what these scribes don't know is that the man on the couch leading the Bible study is a mind reader. Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus poses a question to the religious leaders. Which is easier, to tell someone that they are forgiven or to heal them? Answer, it's easier to tell someone that they're forgiven because you can't really back it up. I mean, you don't have to have proof for that. You just say that. What's harder is telling a paralytic to get up from his mat and start walking. That requires visible proof. 
That requires a paralyzed man to start walking. And so to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins, Jesus does the harder thing and he heals the man. And the man got up and walked out healed and forgiven and everyone glorified God because they had never seen anything like this. I imagine the scribes and the Pharisees weren't the ones who were glorifying God. I imagine they were whispering in a corner, we have got to do something about this guy. This is getting out of hand. He's claiming to be God. We need to put a hit out on him. Scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders should have known better. They should have known what the paralytic and his four friends knew, that they were helpless. The scribes knew their Bible. They knew the Old Testament depicted them as helpless sheep. But they did not see themselves as helpless. They had it all together. And that's a hard lesson to learn, not just for scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders. For all of us, what we desperately need is to learn to be helpless. That's the lesson that the paralytic man is teaching us. Learn to be helpless. Learn to be desperate. Learn to be dependent. Little children are good at this, aren't they? It's all they know, and they're very comfortable with it. Adults, on the other hand, hate helplessness. Adults are allergic to helplessness. Little children are good at this. It is all they know. They don't mind being helpless. They don't mind asking you for help. They don't mind asking you for donuts. They don't care. It's just wake up. Can we have donuts? Can we go to Disneyland? But adults, we're allergic to helplessness. And so whatever is happening in your life right now, I have a hunch that God is trying to get you to see just how helpless you are and how sufficient he is. In this room right now, there are hundreds of problems that we are all facing. And I have a hunch that one reason of many that God is allowing these things is to teach us just how desperate we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't like that. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't like the fact that God is trying to teach us that we are desperate and helpless. We don't want to be helpless. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be desperate. I mean, we tip our hat to that because we are Christians. But if we're honest, we don't like it. We don't want to be helpless. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to be desperate. We like to plan. We like to organize. We like to think that we got this. We like our lives to go smoothly. We're allergic to helplessness. But little children, it's all they know, and they're good at it. And they just ask for help because they know that their reputation is not riding on it. They need help, so they just ask. And that's exactly what the paralytic is doing here. He was helpless, completely helpless. He needed people to carry him to see Jesus. And when it was too crowded and he couldn't get through the door, he had to rely upon other people to lift him up on top of the roof, to tear it apart, and then to lower him down to see Jesus. This is you. This is me. This is us. And the answer to all of our problems is leading a Bible study in his living room. The answer to our problems is leading a Bible study in his living room while some pesky religious folks are questioning his theology in their heads. But this preacher can read minds. 
The answer to our problems is sitting on a couch, reading people's minds as he offers forgiveness to a sinner. The paralytic brought his problems to Jesus. He interrupted Jesus because he knew that he was helpless. That's how Jesus wants us to approach him. Jesus wants us to come to him burdened and heavy laden. He wants us to come to him empty-handed and saying, Jesus, I've tried it all. I've tried to do it on my own. I've tried that gadget that I saw on late night TV that promised me relief and that could be mine for three easy payments of $19.99. But wait, there's more you'll also get. We all do that. We try every little gadget that this world promises to us with three easy payments. And yes, this world always says to us, but wait, there's more. You'll also get this. Been there and done that. Tried it all. I've got a heart full of items that say, as seen on TV. My heart is full of idols that have a sticker on them that say, as seen on TV. I've tried all the gadgets, and they don't deliver. Only Jesus does. Jesus wants you to come to him weak, weary, burdened, heavy laden, exhausted, out of gas, out of luck, out of money, out of your mind. He likes people like that. Jesus loves desperate people. That's how you get in the door or the roof. You've got to be desperate. If you want to make an appointment to see Jesus, the prerequisite is helplessness. But we often want to get rid of our helplessness because we're allergic to it. And so one of the most freeing words that you and I can say is this, help. And we have a Savior who loves to help sinners. And Jesus addressed the paralytic's bigger problem first, which was sin. Jesus could read his mind too. This came, man came in weighted down with guilt and shame. He had probably heard his whole life that he was paralyzed because of sin. That was a common belief back then. Just like what John says in his gospel in John chapter 9, when people ask Jesus why that man was born blind, he said, was it because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? So the paralytic likely heard it his whole life that he was this way because of sin. Think about the weight and the burden and the shame and guilt that he lived with. And this is what I love about Jesus. He took that weight off of him right away. First thing, before he healed him, Jesus dealt with the shame and guilt that this man had been living with. He offered absolution before offering healing. This man's heart was crippled, and he needed a savior, a redeemer, And he got what he needed as he lay on that living room floor because Jesus was sitting there on the couch teaching a Bible study. Now, where did all of this occur? In Capernaum, which means the village of compassion or village of comfort. Don't be deceived. It is not by accident that Jesus chose Capernaum, the village of compassion, the village of comfort, as his headquarters to launch his ministry. What did we see last week in Isaiah chapter 40? Comfort, comfort my people. It's not by accident that Jesus said, my ministry headquarters are going to be in Capernaum, the village of compassion, the village of comfort. He is tipping us off to who he is And what he is like. He's compassionate. He's merciful. He comes and he comforts us. And when you come to him, 
he will not turn you away. He will let you interrupt his Bible study so that you can tell him what's on his heart, what's on your heart and mind. And he will reach out to you and help you and heal you. Jesus loves desperate people. He lives to have desperate people approach him and ask for help. And that's exactly what his own mother did at a wedding. John tells us in his gospel that Jesus was at a wedding in in Cana, which was about 15 miles or so from Capernaum. And they ran out of wine. And what did Jesus' mother do? She goes to her son, who she knows. Mary knew, okay? An angel appeared to her and said, Your son is the son of God. Mary knew, okay? She goes to her son, who she knows is the Messiah, the Son of God, and she asks for help. John tells us in John 2, he says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Mary said, They have no wine, son. That's one of the best prayers in the Bible. Did you know that? That's actually one of the very best prayers in the Bible. That's what the late Norwegian Lutheran pastor and seminary teacher Ole Hellesby says in his book on prayer, which I highly recommend. He says this. In the next place, notice what she says to Jesus. Just these few simple words. They have no wine. Note here what prayer is. To pray to Jesus is to tell Jesus what we lack. I think we can all see how different our prayer life would be if we would only learn this aspect of the holy art of prayer with which the mother of Jesus was familiar. To most of us, prayer is burdensome because we have not learned that prayer consists in telling Jesus what we or others lack. We do not think that that is enough. Instinctively, we feel that to pray cannot be so easy as all that. For that reason, we rise from prayer many times with heavy hearts. All this is changed when we, like the mother of Jesus, learn to know him so well that we feel safe when we have left our difficulties with him. Jesus' first miracle in the Bible was to turn water into wine at a wedding, and he made some very good wine. They said, you saved the best for last? I love that about Jesus. No cheap stuff. No generic stuff, you know, just white bottle with black letters, wine. None of that. And he did it simply because his mama asked. She simply prayed. They have no wine. They're helpless. They're in a pickle because this wedding party is going late into the night and BevMo is closed. Can you help, son? BevMo was closed. They were helpless. And Mary knew Jesus so well that she felt safe in leaving her difficulties with him. She was helpless, but she knew that Jesus loves helpless people. And that's exactly why Ole Hellesby's basic idea of what prayer is in his book is this, helplessness. I'd like to think that Ole Hellesby would love our big idea today. What is prayer? It's simply crying, help. That's prayer, help. They have no wine, help. This is broken, fix it. If you will, you can make me clean. His legs don't work, please help. Note that Mary's prayer was pretty simple. They have no wine. In other words, help. That's a good prayer to pray for people. Help, Jesus. Do you ever struggle what to pray for people? 
As if Jesus needs us to get the prayer just right so that he can move. As if Jesus doesn't know what they're struggling with. And we're trying to word it. Do this, do this, work in this. He knows. As if we're going to help him. He's like, fine. I'm glad you told me what was going on. I had no idea what was going on in life. And you were so detailed in your prayer. Now I know how to work. I think that's how we approach Jesus. What does Mary say? They have no wine. She doesn't come up and say, now listen, there was a party and this wedding and people are, lots of people are invited and it's very important and this and, you know, get him hawing around. She just comes up and says, they have no wine. When you pray for people, help Jesus is enough. Just state their need and leave it with Jesus. Now, I don't mean just pray once for them. I mean, keep praying for people, but it can at times be as simple as help them, Jesus. That's really what the paralytic's friends did here. They ruined Peter's house and interrupted a Bible study by lowering a man down onto a living room floor and then simply saying, help. The wedding at Cana and the healing of this paralytic are reminders to us that Jesus loves desperate people. Jesus loves to listen to desperate people. If that doesn't make you want to pray, I don't know what would. We struggle to pray. It's a burden sometimes. And Jesus loves to listen to desperate people. Jesus loves helping desperate people. It is not a burden to interrupt Jesus. You can interrupt Jesus preaching a sermon and it will not bother him. What bothers Jesus is religious folks. Uptight, uncaring, super spiritual. We have it all together. We have all the answers. We're better than others kind of people. Those kind of people bother Jesus in the Gospels. And they were bothering him in the middle of this Bible study because he could read their minds. What the scribes needed here was a feeling of helplessness. They, like us, forgot that helplessness is how the Christian life works. There's no other option. Paul Miller says, we forget that helplessness is how the Christian life works. The gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus, only works when we realize that we don't have it together. The same is true for prayer. The very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. He continues, when our kids were 2, 5, 8, 12, 14, and 16 years old, I wrote this in my prayer journal. March 19th, 1991. Amazing how when I don't pray in the morning, evil just floods into our home. I absolutely must pray. Oh God, give me the grace to pray. It took me 17 years to realize that I couldn't parent on my own. It was not a great spiritual insight, just a realistic observation. If I didn't pray deliberately and reflectively for members of my family by name every morning, they'd kill one another. I was incapable of getting inside their hearts. I was desperate. God answered my prayer. As I began to pray regularly for the children, he began to work in their hearts. It didn't take me long to realize that I did my best parenting by prayer. I began to speak less to the kids and more to God. It was actually quite relaxing. Parents, does that give you some hope? Listen, I know you're in the thick of it. I'm there with you. Christmas break at our house included a lot of screaming and fighting and complaining and grumbling and bickering. And that's just what was happening between me and Heather. (laughs) 
Seriously, parents, I know life is hard, and I know your Christmas break probably included a lot of screaming and fighting, complaining and grumbling and bickling, and you know why? Two reasons. Number one, everyone in your house is a sinner. I mean, what did you expect? I'm learning to give up on expectations and just be startled that no one committed murder. I told someone during Christmas break about our Christmas break, and I said, if we get to bed at night and no one was murdered in our house, then it was a good day. So one reason your Christmas break included a lot of screaming and fighting and complaining and grumbling and bickering is because everyone in your house, including you, parents, is a sinner. The other reason why your Christmas break included a lot of screaming and fighting and complaining and grumbling and bickering is that God is lovingly trying to get your attention and remind you that you cannot do life on your own. Jesus is trying to FaceTime you so he can tell you, stop being allergic to helplessness. Become a child. They're good at being helpless. Hey, you cannot do this on your own. So parents, just hold out your empty hands and FaceTime Jesus and say, help. Our family is a mess. If you don't help us, Jesus, they're going to kill each other or we're going to kill them. We can't get inside their hearts. Only you can. Please help. We cannot do this on our own. Parents, you can't do this on your own. Elders, you can't shepherd this church body on your own. Deacons, you can't minister here on your own. Students, you cannot navigate the teen years on your own. You can't. And if you know one word, you can make it. Whatever you're going through today, students, teenagers, just say, help Jesus. None of us here can do anything on our own. We need Jesus. And he's as close as one word, help. Neediness is what qualifies us. The thing that we hate, weaknesses, helplessness, the thing that we hate, that's what gets us into Jesus. Neediness is what gets us in the door through the roof to see Jesus. It's the only way because grace flows downhill and Jesus lives at the bottom. The healing of this paralytic, like all the miracles in the Bible, is pointing us to the fact that one day everything sad will come untrue. That's what Jesus' business card says. Jesus making sad things come untrue. At any time in your life, Jesus is doing at least one thing, making sad things come untrue. And if Jesus can heal a paralytic, paralytic and that man can walk out the front door through a crowd with his mat in hand, then Jesus can do anything. Seriously, do not let the shock factor of this episode pass you by. Don't let your familiarity with this story cease to stun you. Jesus just spoke to this guy and he got up and walked out the door. That means that Jesus can do anything. Nothing is impossible for him. Mark wants you to look at your life and see where you need Jesus to do something miraculous for you. If Jesus can heal, if Jesus can fix this guy, then he can do blank. Fill in the blank from your life today. What do you need Jesus to do for you? 
think of it. Because I know it's already there because it's weighing you down. And then put it in this blank. Jesus, I need your help. I'm overwhelmed. Will you please fix blank? So what is it? What's weighing you down today? What's stressing you out? What's breaking your heart? Whatever it is, you have a shepherd, a savior, a redeemer who can do anything. He specializes in making things new. He specializes in making sad things come true. But Sam lay back and started, stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clear. His tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel, he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I've ever heard. That will be us one day because one day everything sad will come untrue. Our bodies will be healed, new, resurrected. Sin will be no more on the new earth. Never again will we have to repent. Oh, that's going to be a good day. Never again will shame enslave us. Never again will guilt gnaw and nag at us. And until then, we have a Savior who helps us as we struggle in this broken, sin-filled world. And one of the ways he helps us is through the Lord's Supper. He helps us as we eat and drink by faith, celebrating his life and death and resurrection. So he actually comes to us in the Lord's Supper. And he's as close as one word, help. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, what does Jesus say to us, to those of us who have been united to him by faith? He tells us what he told the paralytic. Son, your sins are forgiven. We're going to celebrate that truth as we celebrate communion. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing God you are. I don't know why you like sinners, why you love sinners. We shouldn't get along. You're so merciful and gracious and compassionate and kind. And you loved us so much you sent your son to do what we could not do. And he lived a perfect life and died a perfect death and you raised him from the dead and that's our hope. And so we're just astonished like these people. We've, we've never seen anything like this. A holy God loves weak, needy sinners. He loves to help desperate people it's unbelievable. I pray that because we're so familiar 
with the story of Jesus that you would help us to be shocked once again, Father, stunned by this incredible truth that you love us. Give us strength for the journey as we eat and drink today. In Jesus' name, amen.